Welcome to the LSI Behind the Wind podcast. I'm Lauren Lane. For 50 years now, the LSI team has dedicated themselves to the science of business development. We've seen the impact of our work and how it's evolved into economic development and now social impact work. This week, Sean and Josh Johnson, LSI's VP of Economic Development, have a follow-up discussion on the bipartisan infrastructure law, also known as IIJA, and what individuals and organizations need to do to get access to that funding right now. We're about a year into the infrastructure law being signed by the president, and there is a lot that has been done and a lot more that is still to come. Notifications of funding opportunities are frequently being released, so if you have been considering getting going, now is the time to do so. Let's dive in with Sean and Josh. Hey, Josh, thanks for joining me on this episode. Uh, It's been a few months since we have talked about IIJA and although our team has been entrenched in this IIJA work and working with a lot of various federal, state, municipal entities, but I thought it'd be a good idea as we enter into the new fiscal year, what should these organizations be considering as as we enter into the new 2023 fiscal year and you know what what is the status so like i said i appreciate you you uh, being with me on this episode to talk about anything that you're hearing from your contacts within the agencies yeah so it's been a a really good year so far what we have seen though the challenge continues that the turn times are on these are very quick, this funding, and a lot of communities are just not prepared. And those that are, even if they're prepared and know it's coming along, still don't have that internal capability to write to these. And, and a case in point is the this issue of how do you have a technical project, which then requires a whole other section dealing with how you're addressing these Justice 40 initiatives that are prioritizing these projects. And it's it's really uh, taken a lot of communities back, a lot of entities back that even if they have a good technical approach, they still are having challenges writing to the requirements. And many aren't even addressing it like they should, which as you're fully aware, uh, many of these entities are disqualifying themselves just because of uh, what they consider a, a simple component, which is in this case a major component in these proposals. So, just backing up, IIJA, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, was passed last Thanksgiving by the Congress, signed by the President the last week in November of last year. The first quarter was really the administration and the agencies working through. The criteria for awarding this funding to primarily states and municipalities on both formula and competitive grants. And as part of the criteria, the Justice 40, which is one of the primary quantitative elements of IIJA, is that 40% of the funding needs to benefit disenfranchised communities and not just communities, right? It's disenfranchised demographics. I mean, can you just, just spend two minutes talking about that element of this? 
Sure. So what's interesting about this Justice 40 initiative, it's it's spread across the variety of areas. So some people think that it's this diversity component, which is important in it, but it's got a variety of other things. And what we're finding that disadvantaged franchise communities generally are those that have left been left behind for a variety of reasons or actually build over for other reasons. And so what we consider whenever we look at these, there are generally about eight characteristics that are from, and I'll just kind of, I highlight them, climate change, the impacts in that community with what may be happening with climate, what's happening currently with clean energy and energy efficiency within the community. Do they have clean transit? Is there housing that's sustainable? Is there legacy pollution? You know, what, these are just some of the things as well as some of the things that we don't normally think about is, is this a, a community that's got health burdens that they might have high levels of different types of sicknesses that are approaching these communities? And all of these are aspects of what are found within the Justice 40 initiative. And so as we look at this, we're having to map communities that are going after opportunities that don't seem to address the health burden, but the way that these are written, we write in specifically how we're improving the situation within the communities in which we are advocating, or, or I should say, doing their strategy and writing uh, these grants. Yeah, so we had a client uh, this past week that had um, some confusion on this. It's not that, I, mean, I think a lot of these government contractors have this idea that it's an 8A type initiative where 40% of the work must go to a, an 8A type entity or a disenfranchised community. That's not the case. I mean, it is that 40% of the funding must benefit disenfranchised demographics. So there's a lot of in a scope there and a, lot, a broad spectrum that where I believe that both public and private entities can show that the program, the project is benefiting a disenfranchised demographic. Do you agree? Yeah. And what's interesting is you could have a city that everybody believes is doing well. And when you start narrowing into just the several block range, there are mapping techniques that we're using that are actually showing how that community is impacted with A, B, C, D, whatever it might be. And so all of a sudden there's a qualification, even in an area where people think everything's going well. And this is happening across the country in every city, whether the economy is doing well or not, there are these, these islands occurring and they do have priorities, uh, these communities that have these islands within them to go after this funding. And in some cases, it's even at uh, the matching funds are even uh, less when you're addressing these directly, which they should be. We don't want to continue to not allow these communities <clears throat> to advance because they can't pay for a match. And so our team has done a lot of good work in, in making sure that the funding is available, but they, they're not they can go after it without having to do a federal match because in many cases they, they've been disenfranchised and can't even afford that. All right. Appreciate that. So, I, I mean, the timeline on this, as I said, uh, in November of last year, the Congress came together, the House and Senate passed the bill, the uh, 
initially the IIJA bill and then act and sent it to the White House. The president signed the bill on the, it was the last week in November. It was right before December. Spent three months putting together this, uh, the White House guide to what then became the bipartisan infrastructure law. And then when the funding was finally pushed to the agencies this spring, it started trickling into the agencies April, right? If, If I remember right. And you remember when we were meeting with transportation, health and human services, energy, DOD, when our, our team was embedded in each of these entities, there was a lot of urgency and everybody said, we're going to have by the 4th of July, we're going to have everything out. We're going to have all of our RFPs out. Many of these agencies have pulled back. Tell me your thoughts on this. I mean, I, I've got some ideas, but I'd, I'd like to know your thoughts on there was such urgency early on and of the 1.6 trillion dollars appropriated and dispersed to the agencies there's only been a fraction that has been actually pushed a lot of the formula grants have been pushed but i mean there's still a lot of iija funding that that's sitting there what what has created this delay in the agencies committing to this funding? So I think you you raise a very good point. And what has happened with this, a lot of these agencies aren't grant-making entities. They are entities that are given an allocation that then is sent to the states, where the states then are, by through formula, allocating that funding. So what this Congress and this administration has said is, let's turn these federal agencies now into actual grant-making entities that people need to go to them to go compete for that funding. So what you have is this whole process of sending money to states through formulas, usual pro- pro- process, but it, it that's so embedded in legislation and congressional intent that the administration was not able to incorporate what they consider important to have. So what they are doing is, is actually creating how do we manage multi-billion dollar grants where before we were doing multi-million or multi-hundred thousand dollar grants. Now we're having these folks who've never had experience managing specific individual grants. They've managed formula grants and been able to tell the state how to report these. But now you're asking these folks, in some cases, fairly junior in, in, in agencies to be able to develop requirements and guidance to push out grants that a recipient could could get in the hundred plus million dollar range. So it's 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 a fascinating thing. And I think it's it's surprised a lot of people who were thinking, oh yeah, we can easily spend this money. Well, when you have to start to think about how the process of spending dollars are, the oversight of it, that people started to pull back a little on that if we don't do this right, then six months later after it's allocated, we're going to have the IGs or our different entities coming in and 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 saying, how, why did you do it this way? And you're not really, um, you don't really have any rules in place. And so the, the good about that is there's a sense of, 
you know, we need to understand how we're doing it, what we're doing, but every agency is different. So if you're applying for a Department of Energy grant, where before they didn't have this type of money, it's going to be very different than you're applying for a grant through EPA. Same thing. They're developing these requirements and guidance. And in fact, we're writing a a grant right now in which it basically is countering provisions in it because what you've had is a junior uh, administration staffer who is cutting and pasting from areas. And so they're loading up some of these grant applications with 50, 60 requirements that they think, oh, this sounds good. Let's put it in there. What's the problem with that is these grants are 30 pages long. So in in order to meet these requirements, you're going to say what, one or two sentences for each, for each requirement. So, so that's a challenge that people are coming to us all the time. And they'll say, look, requirement number six, it contradicts uh, requirement number 18. And so, you know, these are things in which they're starting to understand are a little more complicated than saying we believe in the environment or we believe in helping those less disenfranchised. We they are starting to think, how do we how do we deliver in a way that they get what they need? And it's, um, you know, the deliverables, we can come back and understand what was done. So there has been some awards uh, early on um, and you can augment this early on. I think some of the first RFPs released and grants awarded were uh, the airport infrastructure, which was a few billion dollars. Broadband, I I know there were some other projects that were released in between, but broadband was, I seem like the next big push. So there's a lot of the uh, buckets of funding that we have talked about on pre- previous episodes that ha- still have not uh, even there. We haven't even seen a pre RFP or no any kind of notice at all that I mean, things that we've been waiting for and that really comprise a lot of the, the law of the funding. Water infrastructure, we we really have not seen any of that uh, be released. The, Energy, a lot of the energy grants have not been pushed. The e, all the EPA, the carbon uh, emission reduction, transportation, clean hydrogen, all of those buckets that that we had talked about still have yet to be pushed by the agencies. Yeah, no, that is the case. I mean, you have all this funding looking at. How do you reduce, reuse, and recycle batteries? So we're pr- promoting this, that we want everybody to turn to battery for their cars, but we have provisions that were passed to, to address, well, what do you do when all of a sudden we have all these batteries and cars? And how do you recycle it? What is the best approach to take? So in some cases, it's kind of it things that are going out first could have some challenges when they technically see later what, how do we resolve certain issues that may be causing some challenges. And there's also a variety of things with remediation for water, soil, you know, solid waste, et cetera. So you're correct that there are a lot of things that are really beneficial to communities across the country that are still in the staging and asking for, in some cases, comments. And I think the big, the big transportation 
infrastructure funding. I, I, I mean, there's a lot of technical elements of uh, of these projects, the roads, bridges, freight, rail, ports and waterway, uh, the, tr- the, the, the transportation bucket that we had talked about, including e- electric vehicles, the EV projects. There is just a lot of technical elements to this, which I think initially there was this urgency to just put anything out, have industry respond or have the states and municipalities respond. And they've, they've sort of pulled back on that. Now, in addition to just the bandwidth of a lot of these organizations in a their ability to commit this funding. And we're, we hear a lot of these organizations are hiring hundreds of new people just to administer and work the reporting on these projects. We have initially, we had heard that the administration and the, the Congress both wanted this funding obligated by tomorrow, right? By the 30th of September, uh, 2022. That then was pushed out to September 30th, uh, 2023. And we've even heard that the, there may be some waivers beyond uh, 2023. Have you heard anything about the obligation of the funding? I mean, we it just, it just seems like as the reality sets in on how big of a project this is that a lot of the agencies are saying this is impossible. Yeah, I think you're correct uh, on that. They, you know, we'll see what Congress does. Some of this is instilled within annual appropriations processes that Congress does that is funding's embedded in that, even though it's allocated for this, there are certain requirements that need to have Congress act and pass its own appropriations laws, which which they're struggling to to move through as we speak. I do think that, you know, once they get through this election cycle, they'll figure out where things are at. I mean, there's there's been a lot of talk about who should be the power of the purse. Is it the administration getting a blank check or should Congress do that? Are we spending it the right way or not? And so those are questions in which have held up some of this going forward. But what's been interesting is a lot of communities are waiting for things to come out, and we are finding that uh, in one case, we were initially working with an entity, and they said, well, let's just hold off for a bit. And they came forward a little while ago and said, we want to go after this now. And the comment was, you, in order to compete for this, you have to have a safety plan. So they, they disqualified themselves because they, wa- they, they took so long to wait to figure out they actually did want, in this case, it was safe streets. It was, safe. It was si- sidewalks and safety for kids and pedestrians and bikers. So a safety plan is a simple thing to do, but they couldn't, they, they couldn't compete for this they were, because they had not developed that. So the best that they could do was ask for some money for that. Well, what that's likely going to do is the next year, is there going to be funding for them to now ask for it? Probably not. And so a lot of these things are, in order to get the funding, there has to be some preliminary work done. And I, our team has been doing great work on making sure that, as we know, things are going to be coming forward in, in two months, four months, six months, 
that they get in place at what we know will be the required documentation so they can actually compete for the millions coming out. Exactly. And we are working with so many of these communities. I'm excited about working with these communities that are committed to going after this funding and that, that have a real strategy. And just to backtrack a little bit, talk about the um, command center concept that we have set up be- in a lot of these uh, organizations and embedded in these communities. So as we see periodically, we have these massive natural disasters that occur. And we're seeing one at this time of year and, you know, the latter part of 2022 with the storm hitting Florida. So when when a storm is going to hit, you have a, a what we call a command center that's put into place. And the Corps of Engineers does it well. FEMA does it well. Department of Defense, of course, does it all the time. Why we like these are not the storms. But we like to know what's what is going to occur and how do you address what the needs will be. And so think of this command center not for purposes of total destruction, sadly, which we're seeing, but what do you do when you recognize there's a lot of funding actually to address challenges that may arise in the future with natural disasters, but as importantly, all the all the pots of funding that there may be there. So as command center would basically be, you'd have a, one person, well, what we have is one person that's coordinating it, the, the, the so-called command center with eyes across all the agencies and funding so that where in some of these cases, you're gonna have one funding agency have to do something in order for another one to fund it. So the role of this command center is to act, act quickly, act in a, in a manner in which uh, is looking at the big vision of the community as a whole and and to ensure that they're compliant in getting the funding. And going back to the storm scenario, within this legislation, there are a variety of provisions or in the Infrastructure Act dealing with how do you make things more resilient? What happens when a fire goes through a community and takes down you know 10 miles of power lines? Well, they're out of power. Well, what does that mean for the community? Well, we should go get a generator. We need to island it off. We need to do this and that. So a lot of the funding right now in the infrastructure law that we're working with communities on is addressing how do you make communities more resilient in times where climate's changing, where natural disasters, when they hit, they're in many cases stronger than what we had anticipated. And so just keep that in mind that, the you know, I'm using the scenario of a command center for a natural disaster, but a lot of this funding is for purposes to ensure that communities are prepared for their growth, for the commu- uh, the people in the community that are less fortunate, that they can meet the infrastructure needs that are deteriorating, and that they can meet the needs of the next 20 to 50 years for climate-related issues that uh, we have found ourselves in. So the, the midterm elections coming up in a few weeks, uh, I've heard a lot of communities, some of our you know, some of our big clients are saying we want to wait until after the election. I, 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 and I think that's the wrong approach. I, I just do not see that there's going to be a lot of uh, changes in the direction. I mean, the, the funding's already been pushed. It's not, I just do not see that there's going to be new or, or a different strategy 
for obligating this funding regardless of what happens in the midterm? I, I mean, can you talk about that for a minute and your thoughts? Yeah, I agree that it's going to, there's not going to be much change moving ahead. I know there's conversations about if the party changes this or that will happen, but as you've described, this is a statute put in place that a lot has been done to fortify the funding streams and the policies moving ahead. One thing that's interesting, and I'm going to kind of jump to a practice that hasn't occurred for years, is in the Congress, they used to do what they call earmarks or direct spending for constituencies. In many cases, they're public entities. Over the past two years, they brought that back. And you'll have members saying, I'm so happy I secured, you know, $3 million for 10 projects in my district. And then we're seeing coming out of the administration from this law that they just passed, you're having agencies say, we are so pleased to help this constituency and give them $50 million. So it's it's kind of ironic that so often people are looking at DC as, oh, let's go get an earmark for this. Right. Where we have found ourselves is that the best opportunities for getting the funding that you need is right out there now. You just have to have that bandwidth to go after these competitive opportunities and also know how to write to them. And, and it's a challenge. And but I, I just it's just fascinating these releases going out from the congressional delegations about a half a million here, a million there, and then we're seeing a billion dollars this day, another hundred million the next day from different agencies in the uh, government who are who are doing basically earmarks with this funding that's going out in the competitive grants. So just, I, I mean, not surprising to most people in this business that uh, it is being politicized, uh, especially during the, the pending midterm elections. So just be aware of that. Try to sift through what is, what is political rhetoric and what is um, facts. We're working with a lot of communities and um, doing a lot of multifaceted programs. I mean, what, what are some of the, the projects that uh, you're really excited about uh, that are teams working under IIJ? So a few that are interesting are uh, we have an, we're working with several different tribal entities who, as many are aware for you know centuries, have continually been said, we, you know, we, we did, we shouldn't have done what occurred. It's, and we want to fix it. Well, what's interesting with this funding is a lot of these tribal entities now are doing projects, which not only are benefiting them, but they're large scale and they're benefiting the communities adjacent to them. So you have a really interesting, you know, the work we're doing is really interesting in which the tribal entities are helping out the regions where either their lands are or where their where the tribal members are. So I find that fascinating. And these are everything from helping with cities transportation projects that are adjacent to some of these tribal lands, as well as some of the broadband funding that is helping some of the disenfranchised folks who may be living in areas where the, it is not. But by leveraging the, the tribes actually taking the lead on this, it's helping improve the situations of many, many folks. We're also finding that you know, in order to win this stuff, that you have to have the bandwidth. And so there's some creative things going on in which folks, some means or foundations that care about different types of audiences can help pay for that funding to get the grant writers in place to write and win. So you think about it from this perspective, let's say I'm a foundation who cares about children's safety in schools. 
and I'm giving out, you know, $50,000 for this initiative, $100,000 for that, or a million for this. In this case, you could be going, you know, paying for not a lot to do the writing of these opportunities that are being granted that could totally be in the several million or $100 million range. And so I think that the thinking, there's been some really creative thinking out there of how do you get these people to write. Um, the last thing I want to say on that, that what it's coming down to, the challenges communities have, is they do not have bandwidth. You talk to them and they say, oh, we got a grant writer. And that grant writer is there, yes, but that grant writer is managing potentially their formula grants. They're managing a grant that they won two years ago and doing the deliverables, but they do not have the bandwidth to write. And even if they write additionally, but even if they did, these grants are so different than any grant we've seen. Definitely. When you're talking about, give me your technical on how you're going to build the freeway, but I also want to know why that freeway is important to meet the health concerns, environmental concerns, the remediation concerns, the safety concerns of all these folks that live in the region who are disenfranchised that are, uh, you know, within the project, not even necessarily even in the project area. It could be larger than that. And there's that capacity uh, we have found that the creativity needed for that is just not there. And so I think a lot of our success has been, you know, that lesson learned has been having a lot of creatives who are writing to meet the requirements that are very unique. It's fun working with some of these communities that have had vision and had a strong strategy and just not the funding. And we're working with a fantastic community that really fits that definition that for a hundred years, it's it's been one of the poorest areas of the United States. And I'm, I've just been impressed with this group and how visionary that they are in saying this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to capture infrastructure funding that they'd never be able to, to fund. And, and for our team, under this command center concept, interfacing with the Department of Transportation and uh, EPA and Energy and Commerce and all of these uh, various uh, organizations just it's it's tremendous and it's a lot of fun i mean it, it's it's really we've got such creative people working on these engagements that uh, are connecting the dots across multiple projects across multiple entities and linking together a project that might be a department of commerce priority to a Department of Transportation or a Department of Energy priority. So it, it's, you know, Lauren and I talked, uh, did, we did a recording uh, some time ago and just talked about if you want to see LSI's, all of the LSI methodology in action, look at these ecosystems where you're, we're pulling together capture, proposal, program execution, the economic development, uh, the, the social impact and job creation. It's just, it's, it's fun to see this in action and it's so convoluted. So a couple things. Uh, 
we still, I just, I think this is, it's interesting that, you know, we still have not seen the big ticket funding come out. A lot of the roads, bridges, and infrastructure projects we still haven't seen. And I think, as we said, a lot of it is bandwidth within the agencies, but also that it is technical and they want they want to make sure it's correct. We've seen very little water come out yet. So that's still yet to come. Some of the things like uh, resilience, clean energy, I mean, the remediation projects still have not been released. Ports and waterways, transportation. I mean, there's still a lot of funding that has not even surfaced at all. And so, I mean, talk about how these communities can can prepare and be ready when when the RFPs drop and that funding's ready ready to be pushed. Yeah, I think you described it well. I mean, we're talking over a trillion dollars of funding that we know is coming out. We know that a third to you know a bit more is going to be competitive, meaning that you're not you have to do something to get it. And that's where I think the the challenge has been with so many communities across the country is they are they're getting additional funding to build out some of the infrastructure that they had planned, but there is so much more that could tie into their infrastructure plan if they thought a little more creatively and went after these additional pots of money, but they just, they can't. There's just, they have limitations on what the bandwidth internally. So I think that um, how I would work it with communities is doing what I mentioned on this, this poor community that wanted to get some uh, safety pieces in play, the sidewalks, the bike trails, et cetera. And they couldn't because they did not do one simple step. And to me, if I'm a community out there, I would be looking and saying, guys, I know this funding's coming forward at some point. Can you help develop what we know we'll need to have, even though the requirements are still gonna be refined, what are the basic things we need? And a lot of these are not, are pretty simple. Some of them retire, require some more uh, technical engineering to be put in place, but at the cost of doing that to what can be done and doing it now rather than waiting means that those projects that before would have been a few hundred thousand dollars to plan out now are in the tens of millions to actually construct. So I just know that this is actually a good thing right now that although we've seen billions of dollars leave this year, we're going to see hundreds of billions of dollars leave over the next little bit. So, I mean, I just, it's, there's just so much out there that uh, communities just need to actually, you know, get, I, I, I give you one last example. We did a, an op, what we call an opportunity pipeline for, in this case, it was a, a company that provides power, which of course for an econ- economy is needed. And they wanted us to come in and identify what are the things that they can go after. Well, when we did this, we realized there were, you know, a couple handfuls of immediate things they could go after. But there were literally hundreds of opportunities, not just tied to the infrastructure law, but that are out there every day that could be tied to that. It wouldn't be the a utility winning it. It would be some other entity that wins it, that actually helps build upon what the utility and the power is to be used for. So, I mean, it really is as creative as, as folks can be. It just takes them to actually act. And 
I just think right now when uh, we're waiting for this uh, over the next couple months, as a lot of these are going to be dropping, it's time for communities to act. As we wrap up uh, this discussion, which I, I mean, I think that our team is so entrenched in this, uh, you know, stepping back and looking at, okay, this is really what's still yet to come is it's, it's, it is remarkable. It is, uh, it, I mean, we haven't even hit half of the funding obligation yet, uh, not even close. So there's a lot left to do. But one of the things that we have not discussed is these ancillary bills that have been passed that are, you know, they're really tangent to the IIJA and I mean the the um, inflation is it the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Chips, the Chips Act, and these are huge funds. I, it, can you just give a brief overview of some of these follow-on pieces of legislation that we weren't really anticipating and just followed in the wake of IIJA. Sure. So we have to remember a lot of times when legislation's passed, it's what can they muster the vote to get to get out at a certain time. So you've seen with a lot of the COVID monies that they had different bills moving throughout the year. One, they would have liked to have done it, the Congress altogether, but you can only do so much before you have enough folks who are pulling, you know, this issue or that issue out. So what with the Infrastructure Act, it was just a follow-up. In this case, it's public infrastructure and, and infrastructure in general is good. And these are the directives of where we want to go. And so that passed. Then you had this Inflation Reduction Act. You have a push by folks saying, I can't make it day to day. And so Congress says, okay, let's figure out ways to lower health costs or let's energy bills or Medicare, whatever it might be. Oh, but by the way, we, we didn't add all the things we wanted to under the Infrastructure Act. So we're going to put another, you know, half a billion dollars, you know, in this case, 500, close to $500 billion to do energy security and climate change, Western drought resiliency. And you can start to see that that a component that should have been part of the Infrastructure Act now is part of the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. And then you get going, you know, even following up on that, the recently passed uh, bill to deal with chips manufacturing in the United States. You have, think about the United States right now, they're trying to buy a car. You can't. There are tens of thousands of cars sitting in lots. They look brand new. Everything's brand new, but they don't have that little chip. And so people cannot buy the car because our incapacity to manufacture in the United States, as well as even abroad, chips. So Congress came into the picture again, says, well, it's, you know, cars are more expensive. Bones are more expensive. Everything that requires chips are more expensive and we don't have them. So they passed legislation in this case saying we need to build more factories and supply chain initiatives to ensure that we in the United States can, can do this. And so that's led to an additional $50 billion more. And so you're going to continue to see these things go forward. But what's interesting is that, again, is money going to, in the case of the chips, to the Department of Commerce, who has not run the $50 billion grant programs that are going to be competitively driven. So the same challenge that we're seeing with the infrastructure law 
is happening on all these provisions. We're again granting the Congress is saying, for whatever reason, we think that the Department of Commerce can manage a $60 billion earmark better than Congress. And they, they may be able to, not, I mean, that's, you know, but at the same point, there's no legislative real direction per se, other than this and the, the, the people at Commerce are going to have to, dis, over the next 18 months, they're going to have to figure out how are we going to create a program that gets chip processing in the United States and ensures a supply chain. So you have very smart people sitting in the administration right now developing requirements for multi-billion dollar programs that they've never, they've never run. And so it's great in many ways because we're addressing the needs that we've had in the United States for decades. But the challenge will be those who can, you know, how are we, how is it going to impact those who can least afford it? But also, how do you get people to write and win this work, which is going to be competitively driven, not just send out in, you know, formulas to states? I think that uh, the initial funding for chips was $50 billion and it is quadrupled in size now up to almost uh, $250 billion that ha- it, it, And it's multiple elements to this, but you, you're right. I mean, it is, it is staggering the amount of money that's going into this. And, and there's... It, that's getting a lot of attention because of the demand for semiconductor technology in that's domestic and the supply chains that are broken. But there are some other smaller supply chain projects coming out of commerce and, and some of the other agencies that I think are really exciting as well. And what I find so interesting about this is that there's a lot of a lot of consideration by the agencies in looking at funding projects that they haven't thought of yet so I mean, being creative as a community as a as a, a state entity or even as a, a a private or nonprofit entity if you if you can get creative and really articulate what it is that you want funded, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, and that we can write a story around that, it's likely going to get funded. Yeah, um, I like that, Sean, really quick, the story. The nice thing about what I like what they're doing, actually, is it's no longer the day I can pour cement and build this. They're saying, I know you can pour cement and do this, but what does that actually mean for where you're pouring cement? Not just for the car that's going to travel on that, but what is the story that's tied to why we should care about that project? And, and, and in many cases, we've forgotten that there's a lot of constituencies that should care about something that are not at the table when something is planned. And we've seen that in a lot of the uh, low-income communities across the country, particularly when we built the highway systems, interstate highways. You, you, when you're driving through major cities nowadays, you look to the side, there's people living under there. And They've lived uh, in a in a manner in a way that uh, we didn't think about when we were building these systems. And now this, uh, with the Infrastructure Act, there are provisions that are saying, okay, you put this freeway right through this community. They can't get on the freeway. They can't get off the freeway here. And it's also right next to all the other things that you didn't want to have put into other communities is all here. 
we need to think about us, meaning those that live with, you know, in those areas, as well as the benefits that others are receiving. So, so it does have a lot of, I think, community uh, benefits that in the, in the long term are actually really good policy directives. Agreed. And just one final plug for uh, these tribal projects. I, you and I both are passionate about uh, the working with tribal entities. And uh, can you just talk for a minute on why a community should consider bringing a tribal nation or some tribal entity into these discussions? I, we, this has been a central part of our IIJA strategy uh, from the beginning, and it goes back uh, over you know to 20, thirty years of LSI's tribal uh, approach. But could you talk about if you're a community, even a large? We're working with a a community that's one of the largest, most affluent communities in America. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting that we're working with, you know, I, I, I guess I didn't think about that until now. We've got on the one side, one of the most affluent communities in America that we're working with and one of the, the uh, most impoverished communities in America that we're working with per capita. Uh, I mean, so if you're, if you are a community that is considering pursuing funding, IIJA, or some of the ancillary policy and bills that are in the wake of IIJA, why should you care, why should you consider about, consider bringing in a tribal entity to work with you? (laughs) Yeah, I like, again, I really like this policy in that so often we we say, oh, by the way, there's the we we have tribes are eligible for this. In this case, this legislation comes straight out and says, look, tribes, you are you're you're prioritized in this. You not only do you have a specific amount that only tribes can go after, we are also in all the competitive funding. You have a precedent that because you are in uh, light of how the administration cages this a disenfranchised community. You have priority to win this a competitive grant above others who have who are communities of more means. What's interesting as well is that uh, they they they've taken off the matches on a lot of these. So where before a community would have to you know put up twenty five percent, in this case of a tribe tribal entity wins a competitive grant, a lot of times these uh, matching funds are not not there. So you have what is interesting the tribes now being able to come in and say, guys, we're all in this together as a community. In this case, we can prime this because it does impact directly what we need, but the benefits are to the region as a whole. So I really like the tribal play in this because we're all in the boat together, but we somehow lost the sight over the years that, you know, there's there's tribal entities that are there or here. Now it's, we're all together and what benefits the tribal nation is also in many cases with what they're doing, benefiting their adjacent communities, which also benefit because of the way that the laws is prioritizing different types of communities. Even communities that have forgotten that, you know, this is the ancestral lands of, of a tribal entity, bringing that tribe back in or a tribe 
back in and uh, partnering with the tribe or with a tribal entity is just going to strengthen your uh, case for the, this funding. It's I can't overemphasize how much attention that the tribes are receiving in in these a lot of these grants. So consider that as part of the strategy as you put together your IIJ um, roadmap. All right. Well, this has been great, uh, Josh. I appreciate uh, your insight and uh, updates on IIJA and uh, appreciate the work with you and your team on working with these communities across the U.S. It's, it's just been a lot of fun and I love to see uh, some of these communities uh, finally being able to fund these major projects that uh, they have, have had a vision for for years. Thanks for having me. Thanks.